0: What is Bob Dylan? Episode 8 of A Bob Dylan Primer takes a slight detour on our journey to try and answer that question. That unanswerable question. In this episode, we're going to break away from the fairly steady chronology we've been following to look at the work that Dylan has done, moonlighting as a filmmaker, a director of movies, a creator of cinema. So welcome to Episode 8, The Movie will be like a song, really. This episode is adapted from a talk I gave recently at the first ever World of Bob Dylan conference in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tulsa is the home of the Bob Dylan Archives, as well as the Bob Dylan Center, which will open fully to the public in 2021. The reason that Tulsa is the lucky beneficiary of all this wonderfulness is a little foggy, as you would expect with anything dylan related but it pretty much started because the Woody Guthrie archives were already in Tulsa, near Woody's birthplace of Okemah, Oklahoma. Getting Woody's stuff collected in Tulsa was largely due to the efforts of one man, although he had an awful lot of help from all over. That man is George Kaiser, an extremely wealthy man whose foundation has funded arts and social programs in Tulsa, to the tune of several billion dollars so far, with no signs of slowing down. Kaiser is the epitome of what a philanthropist can be, and he spearheaded a lot of wonderful stuff happening in Tulsa. When word got out that Dylan was looking for a place to store his archives, Kaiser and the University of Tulsa made the most appealing offer to Dylan and his people. And shortly thereafter, semi-trucks filled with boxes started arriving in Tulsa from New York, packed with more than 50 years' worth of manuscripts, tape recordings, notebooks, reels of film and videotapes, photographs, letters, and a lot of other stuff, including things like a matchbook with Johnny Cash's phone number scribbled on the cover, things like that. Since then, the collection has been augmented by more and new Dylan material as well as stuff given by collectors around the world. The collection is now approximately 100,000 items and continuing to grow by the week. Personal note, I have written, produced, and directed several films and it's mostly through that lens that I'll be looking at the work Dylan's done behind the camera. I've had a fairly varied experience with all aspects of filmmaking, and I've also been lucky enough to observe some very heavy filmmaking talent at close range. So that heavily colors my thoughts about Dylan and film. Hopefully this will be a fruitful investigation into Dylan and film, an overview of thoughts I've had over the years about Dylan as a filmmaker, and what all that entails and also a look at Dylan's career and how his biography intersects with the world of filmmaking. My sense is that Dylan has made four movies in his career so far. Don't Look Back, Eat the Document, Ronaldo and Clara, and Masked and Anonymous. And that assessment takes nothing away from the contributions and talents of D.A. Pennebaker, Howard Alk, and Larry Charles, who are also credited on those four films. These four movies represent signposts along Dylan's journey as a filmmaker, a journey that I would say is as yet mostly unrealized and the victim of some rough and uneven terrain. We'll get back to those films shortly, but first I want to take a look at the shape of Dylan's biography and how that might have impacted his attitude and approach to movies and filmmaking and how that attitude might have further impacted his songwriting and music making. We start in Hibbing, Minnesota, which has been described as a quintessential American small town. Dylan was a little boy in Hibbing just as World War II ended, and he turned 18 in 1959, the very last year before the 60s came and changed everything. And the more I think about Dylan and his work, the more important I think it is to consider Dylan's adolescence as a key to his work. So let's look at Hibbing in the mid-50s as Dylan entered his teenage years. In the hibbing of Dylan's Youth, a town of about 15,000 inhabitants, there were at least four movie theaters in continuous operation. Three of them had classic 50 small town names. Those would be the State, the Homer, and the Gopher. The fourth movie house in town had the more exotic name of the Libba, L-Y-B-B-A. And lo and behold, The Libba Movie Theater in Hibbing was built by one of the first showmen in the town, an entrepreneur and furniture salesman named B.H. Edelstein. B.H. Edelstein was Dylan's great-grandfather. His wife, Dylan's maternal great-grandmother, was named Libba. And in 1947, when Dylan was just six years old, B.H. Edelstein built and opened the Libba Theater, and the operation was run by Dylan's uncles. Around this time, approximately 90 million movie tickets were sold each and every week in the United States, and there were less than 150 million people in the whole country. Think about that for a minute. Imagine young Bobby Zimmerman going downtown on the weekends to see movies at the brand new movie house owned by his relatives. Think about what an impact and influence that might have had on the kid. And then, when Bobby is 14 two movies in particular come to town. Blackboard Jungle, which was the first time a teenager could actually see rock and roll instead of just hearing it on the radio. And then that winter, Jimmy Dean showed up on a hibbing movie screen in Rebel Without a Cause, which was released shortly after Dean's death in a car wreck, an event that sent shivers of mortality through every teenager in America. So it seems pretty clear that these Early experiences of watching movies every weekend within the somewhat personal context of having a family-owned movie theater in town helped to create a deeply rooted sense in young Bobby of a great shimmering universe down the highway and across the sea from Hibbing. So with that as a kind of foundation, the next few years find Dylan soaking up a near-constant stream of rock and roll, rhythm and blues, and country-western music on the radio. And clearly, the urgently direct power of this music obliterated everything else that might have been coming Dylan's way for a number of years, like movies or literature or anything like that. So movies took a little bit of a back seat for a moment. Now, we jump ahead several years to 1963, where Dylan is ensconced in New York City and quickly becoming a world-famous performer. And this period coincides exactly with the moment that the Hollywood studio system, which furnished all of the movies that made this titanic impression on the teenage Bobby, was now imploding. And filling the void left by this implosion were at least two newly important streams of cinema culture. Foreign films, as they were somewhat colloquially known back then, and American independent cinema. In terms of foreign films, new venues of distribution brought these movies to a much wider audience than ever before. And some of the key figures of European and world cinema were in the prime of their careers at this moment. Directors like Federico Fellini, Francois Truffaut, Luis Buñuel, Agnes Varda, Akira Kurosawa, and many others. American independent cinema was also coming into its own with young filmmakers like Jim McBride and John Cassavetes starting to bring new approaches and subject matter to mainstream movies. This new cinema in America also included new forms of documentary, two of which were known as direct cinema and or cinema verite. There are some differences between these two schools of filmmaking, but they both emerged in the early 60s and were pretty revolutionary at the time. Developments in equipment technology led to cameras and tape recorders that were much smaller than previous models and this allowed for a more direct and intimate approach to capturing real life. So these new documentary forms were seen as more truthful and or realistic than those of the past. And this is the moment when Dylan is very quickly zooming up the hipness chart so that within a matter of months, he's going to become the coolest cat on the entire planet. And at that moment in time, and especially in New York City, the cool people were being drawn very forcefully into this newly emerging and very exciting world of cinema. The hip thing to do on a Friday night in Greenwich Village in the early 60s was not to go see a band, it was to go and see the latest foreign film and release. Films like The Virgin Spring, Shoot the Piano Player, Viridiana, Exterminating Angel, La Dolce Vita, Rashomon, Woman in the Dunes, etc. And film, at that point in time, was replacing the novel as the most dynamic medium for creative expression in the Western world. So Bellow and Mailer and Kerouac and Salinger are being pushed aside by Truffaut and Fellini and Bergman and even D.A. Pennebaker. Certainly, pop music was lower on the totem pole of cultural currency than film. So I think there was a definite moment or series of moments where Dylan seriously contemplated making films as his primary job. My sense is that in 1964 or 65, that Dylan hadn't yet locked into the kind of identifying badge that he would wear up until today of being a songwriter or performing artist or entertainer musician. I think in those early years, the pull of cinema was very strong on Dylan. So the point I'm getting to is that, let's say in 1964 as a still very young Dylan is simultaneously navigating the worlds of pop culture, stardom, and creative expression. Becoming a filmmaker might have seemed like a viable option for Dylan and in fact during that time he's clearly thinking about making films as more than just a sideline. He mentions in several interviews that he's making a movie or going to be making a movie even going so far as to reveal that he's been collaborating with poet and new friend Allen Ginsberg on the screenplay. Dylan describes the film he's writing as a horror cowboy movie and further reveals that he's going to be starring in the film and playing the role of his own mother. Obviously there's the 1964-65 jokey Dylan persona at work here, but I'm fairly certain that Dylan was seriously contemplating a future in film. It's funny and a little ironic that Dylan is the one who led the shift in how pop music was perceived, where the form was elevated and taken more seriously, bringing pop music up to an equal cultural level to that of cinema at that time in cultural history. So, what does Dylan do? In his always unerringly effective, semi-unconscious decision-making process, Dylan has his manager, Albert Grossman, call up D.A. Pennebaker, who was one of the pioneers of direct cinema and working in New York City at that time. And then Dylan and Pennebaker meet up in a bar in the village, and they shake hands on a deal agreeing to be 50-50 partners on the project, which, by the way, they remain to this day. So Pennebaker packs up his gear, and flies along for Dylan's 1965 tour of England. And I think one of the underlying motivations which may have remained unspoken for bringing Pennebaker into the fold to film the 1965 tour was so that Dylan could absorb, in his sponge-like manner, the machinery of the independent filmmaker, the gears, the innards, the inner workings of how an independent film is really put together. If you watch, don't look back, there's a sense that Dylan is also observing and absorbing the filmmaking process. And of course, this becomes obvious in the opening scene of the eventual movie, which was eventually titled, Don't Look Back. And that opening scene, according to Pennebaker, was inspired by a suggestion from Dylan to film a scene where he would be writing lyrics on paper and then throwing the pages to the ground. And so, this super iconic scene can be seen as Dylan's first foray into directing film. I just have to say it's one of the most appealing documentaries ever made. Don't Look Back is so fascinating and enjoyable at the same time that it feels to me like something you just want to bite into. And I feel like it's the most tantalizing remnant we have of Bob Dylan as a filmmaker. Even though Pennebaker cut it together and made all the editorial choices using footage that he filmed, Dylan's personality and intent are so powerful that I feel they actually directed the film. Again, taking nothing away from the great talent of D.A. Pennebaker. Moving quickly from Don't Look Back, Dylan was inspired enough by the experience to double down the following year during the 1966 tour, when he hired Pennebaker again, but this time just to be a cameraman, as Dylan planned to direct his own movie about the new tour which included an electric set backed by the band. The footage shot during the tour was edited together into a film and finally released, but just for a brief moment in 1972. The film, called Eat the Document, was then pulled from release by Dylan and is still not commercially available for viewing by the public. But sections from the film were used by Martin Scorsese in his 2005 documentary on Dylan, called No Direction Home, and there are also some poor copies of the movie in various places on the internet. Looking at the Eat the Document experience from a career perspective, it has to be considered a fairly big mess and definitely put a crimp in any plans Dylan may have had to write and direct films for the near future. There are some terrifically cool moments in the film and some amazing performance footage of the 66 tour with Dylan on stage backed by the band, but overall the film is a tough slog. It's so roughly edited that it's logical thread is pretty hard to untangle. The movie is filled with quick and jarring cuts from one shot to another with little connection between the two scenes and lots of shots of pretty girls and dogs, trains, and cars. Again, there are some tantalizing bits of performance footage and a great moment of Dylan banging away on an upright piano. One amazing thing the movie does have is a brief scene of a very worn-out Dylan sitting on a bed in a hotel room with Robbie Robertson who's playing an acoustic guitar. And we see and hear a bit of a song called I Can't Leave Her Behind that apparently Dylan was working on but never finished or recorded again. And on the big old huge gigantic box set called The Cutting Edge that was released in 2015 with all of the 1966 material, there is the full recording of the song from the hotel room. And to me, just personal taste here, it's maybe... The most beautiful bit of melody ever recorded by Dylan. I wouldn't play this track for someone new to Dylan or someone too very young. I think you you need to have at least a couple dozen years of life on you and maybe have felt the sting of the world a bit. But if you feel like you dig Dylan and have never heard the track, I suggest you seek it out. Once again, it's called I Can't Leave Her Behind. I was able to include the song on the Spotify playlist I created for this episode, which is called... A Bob Dylan Primer Episode 8. What are we to make today of Eat the Document? My sense is that at some point between his exhaustion and recuperation from the 1966 tour and his quickly growing family, Dylan lost both interest and control of the project. And this brings us to a mundane fact of the filmmaking process that I think was at odds with Dylan's favorite working methods. Completing a film is so painstaking and difficult that it needs either a single perfectionist at the helm, weathering all storms until the final print can be delivered, the cliché but real stereotype of the megalomaniac director, or it needs a dedicated team of sailors to continue the nautical metaphor all working together to bring the ship into the harbor, like an old-time movie studio, for example, or a premium television network today. Neither of those two paradigms seems to fit how Dylan likes to work. This brings us to the period of late 1966 and 67, and I would put forth that making movies, especially on the heels of the Eat the Document experience, had to take a back seat to some more pressing concerns. And in Dylan's case, I really believe, without hyperbole, that he had to make some sudden adjustments in order to save his life or protect his life. And once his life was on somewhat more solid ground, he then devoted his being to preserving his artistic life, which meant a near total break from the past. And it's hard to overemphasize the drastic difference between Blonde on Blonde, released in May of 66, and John Wesley Harding, released just 18 months later. And then, Dylan continued to rebuild his artistic core, and again, he put movie-making aside. From 1967 to 1973, opportunities didn't really present themselves to Dylan to make another film. He did, of course, play a small part in and score Sam Peckinpah's wonderful movie, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. And, I think, similarly to how Dylan learned from Pennebaker, he saw this experience as the opportunity to learn more about the craft at the hand of a master. Unfortunately, even though the finished film is beautiful and and moving and terrific, the master in this case, Peckinpah, was so drunk and disorderly most of the time that what it mostly did for Dylan, I'd guess, was reinforce his anti-authoritarian instincts because Peckinpah was feuding with the studio intensely during the making of the movie. Dylan said at one point, I learned by working in Pat Garrett that there is no way you can make a really creative movie in Hollywood. You have to have your own crew and your own people to make a movie your own way. So acting in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid did point the way for Dylan towards possibly a different way of making films. Moving ahead one year now to 1974 we arrive at a time when Dylan is again sort of hitting a wall creatively and it's around this time that he undergoes what I consider the most important transformation of his life his career and his music and we'll talk more about this in later episodes when we get to this point in the music chronology. In public comments Dylan has linked this transformation to the teachings he received from his painting teacher at the time a man named Norman Rabin. To me, the specific contribution that may or may not have come from Rabin is not the most important thing here. What's important is how Dylan, from this point forward, started to break apart notions of perspective and point of view in his songwriting. And a prime example of this shift is Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts from the 1975 album Blood on the Tracks. Again, we'll talk more about Blood on the Tracks when we get there, But this has to do with Dylan and film. I'm going to quote here from a thesis paper published by a musicologist and Dylan scholar named Jonathan Hodgers. I met Jonathan in Tulsa and he's written wonderfully about Dylan's work, so here's Hodgers on Lily, Rosemary, and the Jack of Hearts. The song concerns a love quadrangle and is set in a cabaret. With its quantity of characters and a dense plot filled with incident and dramatic left turns, The song amounts to a film in verse. The song furrows new ground with its ambitious storytelling and its establishment of a distinctly visual narrative space. What Hodgers is saying, and I couldn't agree more, is that the song uses cinematic strategies to tell its tangled tale. And so it seems to me that as Dylan explored these new forms of songwriting and storytelling, it triggered a reawakening of his desire to try and tell a story in film. And so, As he mounted the Rolling Thunder tour in 1975 and 1976, that evolved into the movie, Ronaldo and Clara. This new attempt at filmmaking was no longer a potential career shift, as perhaps represented by Don't Look Back or Eat the Document, but instead, this seems as if Dylan's ideas were suddenly too big for a black vinyl disc. Instead, he needed a touring carnival of a hundred or more characters and a five-hour film shot in 35mm to express himself at that current moment. When Ronaldo and Clara was released in January of 1978, I was at the opening night of the run of the nearly five-hour version at the late, great Fox Venice Repertory Movie Theater in Venice, California. What has stayed with me all these years is the amazing 30-foot-high close-ups of Dylan performing in Whiteface and the beautiful 35 millimeter footage of the countryside and cityscapes. The dramatic scenes in the movie felt more than a little silly and not all that convincing. And I'd argue here that Dylan's film power is nearly unmatched in the documentary form so that observing him through a camera lens is amazingly compelling. But when he is acting, in the traditional sense, it falls mostly flat. And yet, of course, Dylan. When he's being filmed in a documentary setting like Don't Look Back, is acting. He's acting at an almost Brando-like level, right? So I feel like Dylan's most powerful cinematic manifestation comes when he's the subject of his own documentary. At that level, his image and sound produce levels of meaning on par with the highest cinematic art. Having said all that, Ronaldo and Clara was savaged by critics. I mean, it was pretty roundly panned. It didn't last long in the theaters. Shortly after its release in 78, Dylan pulled the movie from movie theaters, and it's never been released on video or digitally. So the only way to see the movie today is watching a very blurry and warbly copy on the internet. But some of the best footage from the movie recently resurfaced in a documentary that's playing on Netflix Called Rolling Thunder Review, which was directed by Martin Scorsese, that film is a combination of contemporary interviews talking about Dylan's Rolling Thunder tour, and footage from the years 1975 and 76 that was filmed of the tour, including stage dramatic scenes, both of which were originally included in Ronaldo and Clara. So the Scorsese documentary gives a glimpse of the potential that lies within the Ronaldo and Clara material, and hopefully one day we'll see a restored version. It's got a lot of really cool stuff in it, and it would be great to see it put back together again. In Ronaldo and Clara, the power of the documentary footage so overwhelms the acted scenes that I think the movie suffers somewhat. The tour was the real artistic creation of that time, and Ronaldo and Clara is a little betwixt and between being either a revelatory document of Rolling Thunder or an evocation of the artistic transformation that Dylan was undergoing during that time. And after Ronaldo and Clara, Dylan pretty much stayed out of the filmmaking game for the next 25 years, until 2003, when the movie Mast and Anonymous was released. Mast and Anonymous was written by Dylan and Larry Charles, who also directed the movie. Larry Charles was the main writer on the Seinfeld TV show and later went on to direct the Borat movie. But Maston Anonymous was his first feature film. The film stars Dylan and a bunch of fantastic actors, including Jeff Bridges, Penelope Cruz, Val Kilmer, John Goodman, and Jessica Lange, among many others. While Maston Anonymous might not be an example of the highest cinematic art, it is a wonderful and woefully underrated movie. And it's a movie mostly by Bob Dylan, I think, even though Larry Charles was a director and certainly left his mark on the finished product. But the screenplay is nearly pure Dylan, with a few concessions to conventional Hollywood narrative structure. The movie was released and completely bombed. Not even Dylan fans went to see it, and that's a shame. Because it's a total hoot, and all of Dylan's obsessions and fascinations come through loud and clear. It's packed with all kinds of themes and imagery that are classic Dylan. It's a movie about fate and power and family and betrayal and good luck and bad luck and freedom and the loss of freedom and obsession and love and loss and traveling, of course. And the musical numbers, which were recorded live with Dylan and his band, are exceptional. The way that I make sense of Dylan's movies is to see them as simply extremely long Dylan songs, using actual imagery, sound, and spoken dialogue in place of lyrics and melody. So while Dylan's filmmaking career might not be a success using the usual metrics and or critical assessments, there is another way to look at his four-movie oeuvre, and that is to look at the effect in the viewer of watching these movies with a viewer who is paying at least a modicum of focused attention, and I'd suggest that the effect is a dual effect similar to that of Dylan's songs, causing the viewer to look at the world in two altered ways, looking harder at the forces controlling our lives and looking softer or with a greater sense of wonder at the powerful but ultimately unknowable shadow world. Thank you for listening, and if you'd like to hear some of the music referenced, please check out the public playlist I created on Spotify under the name A Bob Dylan Primer. Also, please visit our website at abobdylanprimer.com to find cool supporting content about Bob Dylan, including links to some amazing stuff for Episode 8. There are links to some of the movies and clips we talked about in this episode. If you're enjoying this series so far, please share with your friends and accomplices via all media social and otherwise. And thank you very much.